Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello again, fellow Flyers. Welcome to the Plane Crash Podcast. This is your captain of the podcast, Michael Bauer. I hope you all had a great Thanksgiving if you celebrate Thanksgiving. I apologize for the delay in the making of this episode. I'm going to take the easy way out and blame it on several days of existing inside a turkey-induced coma. When all else fails, blame it on the turkey. Uh, Today is our 13th episode, lucky number 13, or is it unlucky number 13? I guess it's like all aspects of life. It is whatever you want it to be. If you want to have a happy life, you're going to do it, and kudos to you. Thanks to all of you out there that have been listening and supporting the podcast with your kind reviews and ratings on Apple Podcasts. We greatly appreciate your time and motivating words. If you haven't reviewed the show yet, please do so if you have a moment. We love reading your thoughts and need all the encouraging words we can get. If you want to follow us on Twitter, our Twitter handle is Plane Crash Pod. That's Plane Crash Pod. In today's episode, we will be taking a look at Air Canada Flight 797, a scheduled flight from Dallas Fort Worth International in Texas to Toronto International in Canada on June 2nd, 1983. Before we get to that, I'd like to introduce our guest. Joining us today again on the podcast is our esteemed producer and the keeper and creator of the stuffing around the Thanksgiving table, Tess Andrade. Say hello to the people, Tess. Hello, people. Did you have a good Thanksgiving? I had a great Thanksgiving. If you could only have one menu item on the Thanksgiving menu, what would you go with? Oof, that's a tough question. I mean, I think we've discussed this before, and it's really all about the medley of flavors, I would say, but... 
Um, if I had to choose one, it would probably be the stuffing, and it's not just because oh. I'm the creator and keeper of it. Oh, I'm a <laughs> stuffing person as well. I feel like everything else, I can have at any point. Stuffing is the the only time I get it is at Thanksgiving. You gotta have the stuffing. I have turkey, I have mashed potatoes, I have bread all the time. Stuffing only on one day a year. Absolutely. No stuffing is kind of a deal breaker for me. One thing I noticed recently when looking for flights is that airlines are offering this new thing called basic economy. I guess it's not too crazy new. It's been happening the past couple of years. But you basically get a cheaper ticket, but you don't get to choose where you're seated and you can't bring a full-size carry-on. How do you feel about basic economy? I don't think I'm a fan. I'm sort of a particular traveler, you know, being a nervous traveler and all. Mm-hmm. Uh, so not being able to choose my seat really doesn't sound good. Plus, I always carry on my bags. Yeah, I just feel like things are constantly being stripped away and giving you a cheaper ticket. I would never want that ticket because I'm in the same boat as you, that I want to know exactly where I'm seated and make sure I have like the seat that I want and I don't have that anxiety of not knowing if I'm going to get a ticket or where I'm sitting. And I also feel like uh, there's a psychological effect. The fact that I would never buy that ticket means I buy another ticket. And when I'm buying that ticket, I'm kind of like, oh, man, there's a cheaper option out there. Like, um, am I wasting money? It makes me feel bad about my purchase. Right. You feel guilty for not going with the basic option. Yeah. I feel like uh, I spent more money. I'm like, oh, maybe I shouldn't. Uh, I, don't, I can't afford this more expensive ticket. I should go with the cheaper ticket. And I'm making a purchase, I'm supporting this airline, I'm supporting the industry, but then I feel bad about my purchase. Like, right. yeah. oh man, there was a cheaper option. You know, everybody wants to feel like they're getting a good deal. Yeah, it feels like the entry level ticket should be, you should get, you know, all the bells and whistles of being able to choose your own seat and carry on a bag. That's That's just something that everybody should be able to do. Yeah, soon they're going to offer you a ticket for $25 and you have to go hang out with the baggage in the cargo hold or something. Hey, it might be a friendly baggage. (laughs) Yes, friendly baggage. Surround me with the friendly baggage. Um, How do you feel about traveling by plane around the holidays? Uh, Is it no big deal or is it the nightmare before Christmas? I would say nightmare before Christmas status. Don't like it. Don't like to do it. If I can avoid the uh, holiday rush, I will. Yeah, I think I'm kind of in your boat. I, I in the past, have been like, oh, man, Christmas, it's a hectic time. Airports are going to be packed. It's going to be a lot of traffic to the airport, lots of delays. Everybody's doing it. But recently, I've been trying to embrace a new self. And this new self says, stop complaining and enjoy life. So you got to pay a little extra to fly through the sky when everybody else wants to fly through the sky. But, you know, your life isn't that tough in the year 2019. You know, how about you just enjoy a cocktail in the sky, watch a movie, relax, strike up a conversation, enjoy the miracle of flight. You know, you're about to hang out with your family and hug them and tell them that you love them. So maybe... Dealing with a little bit of a hassle isn't that big of a deal. Maybe we blow it out of proportion. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I think the first thing that popped into my head was the lines and the traffic. But there is a kind of energy in the air when you're going home for the holidays Mm -hmm. and everyone else's that is super contagious and exciting. It's fun. Life is fun. Life is supposed to be fun. So relax and have some fun. If it wasn't fun, you wouldn't see it in the movies all the time. I feel like lots of Christmas movies... Love Actually deals with airports and yeah. 
family members coming home for the holidays. It's kind of a something that we um, we celebrate in in the media. Yeah, lately I've been enjoying the process of flying more. I enjoy the ride to the airport. I enjoy going to the airport and having a drink and seeing people, people watching, getting on the plane, being dressed up. I think everything's about attitude and I'm just trying to have a better attitude about it. Yeah. Are you enjoying flying more since you've started this podcast? Yes, definitely. I feel like it's it's made the experience something that I notice all the details. When we're flying through the sky and I see the flaps go down, uh, as we're about to land, I'm like, oh, I understand what that means now a little bit. So I feel like uh, I am enjoying it. And I think, I'm, I think I'm also just trying to have a better attitude about life. A better attitude always gets you better places, I would say. Definitely. Well, let's get to our sponsor. Speaking of better. Our sponsor for today's episode is BetterHelp. What is BetterHelp? BetterHelp is the world's largest counseling service designed for 21st century needs. BetterHelp will provide you with a detailed questionnaire and match you with your own counselor from their network of certified therapists. You can communicate with your counselor in under 24 hours via video or phone sessions. You can also message your therapist at any time. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional therapy, and you're not limited to the conventional hours like 9 to 5. You can use the service from the comfort of your home and skip traffic. There's a broad range of therapists available, so you're not limited to only therapists in close proximity to you. I feel like there's this misconception about therapy that therapy is only for people with major problems or issues. I think everybody should be in therapy. It's good to have an intelligent, objective individual talk to you about your life plan or anything that's bothering you. How have you liked uh, using BetterHelp so far, Tess? I'm not just saying this because they're our sponsor, I have nothing but good things to say so far. I really liked my therapist, connected mm-hmm. with her right off the bat. And um, yeah, I think this type of therapy is just really great for me because my work schedule can be pretty demanding. Cool. Yeah. Well, if uh, you're a listener out there and you're interested, if you go to betterhelp.com forward slash plane crash pod, you get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, help, H-E-L-P, betterhelp.com forward slash plane crash pod, and you get 10% off your first month. Do it, people. Make the right choice. So we went to New Mexico a few weeks ago, and we recorded an on-plane segment. Give it a listen. So we're on board Southwest Flight 3221, and I'm in the company of the producer of the podcast with Tess Andrade. How are you doing, Tess? Hello, everyone. Oh, I think there's an announcement. Uh, anyway, we were just talking about mobile passes versus paper passes, yeah, and I, I'm definitely a paper person. How are you, Tess? I think I'm a paper person, too. I uh, like it the old-fashioned way. Yeah, people are always adjusting the brightness of their phones and fiddling with these devices that might be low on power. I just like a good old paper ticket. Makes you feel like the good old days, and you're on the plane. Right now, we got a couple of cold drinks in our hands, and we're going to have a good flight to Albuquerque. Yeah. So thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks, everyone. So that was our first on-plane segment, short and sweet. Now, I'd like to mention at the top of every episode that I'm not a pilot. I didn't go to aviation school. This podcast started because I've always been a nervous flyer, and I start to question why. Why is it that I'm so nervous flying compared to everyone else? I thought by researching crashes of the past and using this podcast as an anxiety exposure therapy of sorts that I could get past my nervous feelings and realize that all these crashes from the past gave us important lessons that improved air safety today. 
We realize that each accident we discuss is a tragedy in the lives of many human beings out there, and we by no means want to make light of that fact. We hope that others find these crashes and the lessons that followed from them to be interesting and useful when considering the safety of air travel today. Ready to get started, Tess? Ready for takeoff. Let's do this. Air Canada Flight 797 was a scheduled flight from Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport in Dallas, Texas, to Toronto International Airport in Toronto, Canada, on June 2, 1983. After landing in Toronto, the plane was going to continue on to Montreal Trudeau Airport in Montreal, Canada. The plane was a McDonnell Douglas DC-932. It was delivered to Air Canada from McDonnell Douglas on April 7, 1968. So at the time of the incident, the plane was just over 15 years old. Since 1968, the plane had 36,625 hours of flight time and 34,987 total landings. The DC-932 was 15 feet longer than the original DC-9 and thus could accommodate more passengers, 89 compared to the original DC-9's 80. The DC-9 was developed by McDonnell Douglas in the 1960s, to offer airlines a new, updated plane that they could fly to small and medium-length routes, servicing smaller cities with smaller airports more efficiently than the existing aircraft at the time. The DC-9 had two tail-mounted engines, smaller wings compared to the DC-8, and a T-tail, meaning the horizontal stabilizer was at the top of the vertical stabilizer on the tail of the plane, and thus, thus it looked like the letter T. Because the engines were mounted on the rear of the plane and not attached to the wings, the wings were lighter, and flaps on the wings could be longer. This allowed the DC-9 to take off and land at lower speeds, which meant the plane didn't need as long of a runway to take off or land. Also, because the engines weren't attached to the wings, the fuselage could be lowered to the ground, and it was easier for passengers to get on and get off the plane. It was easier for baggage handlers to access the cargo hold and get luggage off the plane. DC-9s had a built-in air stairs, which meant boarding times were shorter because the second the plane landed and stopped, passengers could just exit the plane. So this plane was geared towards servicing smaller markets and has a few updates to make turnaround times at these smaller airports faster, and thus airlines can make more money by having a more efficient commercial plane. The captain of Air Canada Flight 797 was Captain Donald Cameron, based out of Ottawa. He was 51 years old at the time of the incident. He was hired by Air Canada on March 28, 1966, so he had been with the airline for 17 years. He was qualified as a captain in the DC-9 in November 1974. He had 13,000 flight hours and 4,939 hours in the DC-9. The first officer of Flight 797 was 34-year-old Claude Wimet. He was hired by Air Canada on November 25, 1973. So he had been with Air Canada for nine and a half years at the time. Wimet had 5,650 flight hours and 2,499 flight hours on the DC-9. Both Wimet and Cameron had Canadian certifications to fly DC-9s. The plane was registered in Canada, but with their... Canadian certifications, they were allowed to operate the plane in the United States. There were three flight attendants on Flight 797. 37-year-old Sergio Benetti was the chief flight attendant. He joined Air Canada in early 1972. 
28-year-old Laura Kayama joined Air Canada in May 1976, and the third was 33-year-old Judith Davidson that came to the airline in July of 1973. So there was a total flight crew of five. Flight 797 had 41 passengers on board, and with the flight crew of five, there were a total of 46 human beings on the plane. Air Canada Flight 797 takes off from Dallas en route to Toronto at 4.25 p.m. Central Standard Time on June 2, 1983. It's a normal flight for the first hour and 26 minutes. The plane climbs to 33,000 feet. Dinner is served. There's only 41 passengers on this plane that can seat around 90. So passengers spread throughout the cabin. They relax, stretch out because the plane's less than half full. In the cockpit, First Officer Claude Wemet is having his dinner. Captain Cameron asks Wemet, How's your seafood? Nice? Wemet replies, It's good. Cameron asks, Is the steak nice? Wemet answers, Different, a little bit dry, but okay. So passengers are finishing up their dinner, using the restroom, and the First Officer is having his meal. It's a very comfortable and relaxed atmosphere in the passenger cabin and in the cockpit. At 6.51 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, almost an hour and a half into the flight, as the plane is flying over Louisville, Kentucky, and First Officer Wamet is finishing up his meal, three circuit breakers located behind the captain's seat are thrown. Wamet hears the sound of the breakers being tripped, and he says, What was that? It's right here. I see it. Captain Cameron says, Yeah, DC bus, the uh, left toilet, left toilet flushing. Captain Cameron tries to flip the circuit breakers back, but the switches won't hold. All three just pop back off and make a pop, pop, pop noise. Captain Cameron comments like a machine gun. First Officer Wemet replies, yeah, zap, zap, zap. Captain Cameron speculates somebody must have pushed a rag down the old toilet or something, eh? Jammed it and overheated it. The time is now 6.53 p.m. Initially, this doesn't strike either of the pilots as a major issue. Dinner was just served throughout the cabin, and what happens after people eat dinner? They get up and use the restroom. So they assume several people just went to the bathroom, and the flushing motor for the toilet in the rear lavatory might have been used over and over again in a short period of time, and this overheated the flushing motor and threw the breaker. The captain decides to give the breaker some time to cool off, and he's going to try it again in a few minutes. For the next five minutes, the discussion between the two pilots moves on from the toilet breaker situation into cloud cover and alternate airports. Captain Cameron says, don't see the ground too often today, eh? No, a lot of cloud, the whole area. Then for a few minutes, the two pilots try and figure out what different abbreviations on a grid chart in the cockpit mean. Captain Cameron guesses that these abbreviations are alternate airports. At 6.59 p.m., Eight minutes after the circuit breakers initially tripped, Captain Cameron tries three more times to flip the breakers back, but to no avail. He comments, pops as I push it. Time is now 7 p.m. on the nose. Around the exact same time that Captain Cameron is trying to flip the breakers again, a passenger seated in the last row of the aircraft gets the attention of a flight attendant, Judith Davidson, and tells her that a strange odor is coming from the back of the plane. The flight attendant, Davidson, thought that the odor was coming from the rear lavatory. So she takes a fire extinguisher off the cabin wall and opens the bathroom door, 
slightly, and she finds that from floor to ceiling, there's a light gray smoke. She doesn't see any flames at all, but the light gray smoke is filling up the bathroom. Davidson then gets the attention of her fellow flight attendant, Laura Kayama, and tells her to get the chief flight attendant, Benetti, to come to the back of the plane. Benetti comes to the back of the plane and takes the fire extinguisher from Davidson, and he opens the bathroom to find a thick black smoke now. Again, he doesn't see any flames, but he sees this thick black smoke coming out of the ceiling and behind the vanity where the sink is and the seams in the bathroom walls. Benetti blasts the fire extinguisher throughout the lavatory. He saturates the seams where the black smoke is pouring in. He hits the trash bin and ceiling and then closes the bathroom door. The flight attendants then ask all the passengers seated at the back of the plane to move up towards the front of the plane, away from the smoking lavatory. In the cockpit, while flight attendant Davidson is just discovering the smoke in the bathroom, the two pilots are unaware that there's this issue going on at the back of the plane, and Captain Cameron says, I better have dinner here. Sergio, can I try for mine now, please? Sergio, the chief flight attendant that hasn't been informed of the fire yet, says, sure. Captain Cameron asks his co-pilot, do you want any of that fruit or should we give it to the girls? First Officer Wemet says no. 40 seconds later, at 7.02 p.m., flight attendant Kayama comes into the cockpit and says, excuse me, there's a fire in the washroom at the back. They just went to go put it out. So 11 minutes elapses between the circuit breakers initially being thrown to the pilots discovering that there's a fire going on at the back of the plane. Captain Cameron tells his first officer to go take a look at the situation so they can get an idea of how bad this fire is. First officer Claude Wimet walks down the aisle of the plane, and he's out of the cockpit for around 45 seconds. When Wimet gets to the back of the plane, he finds he can't even get to the rear lavatory. The smoke has now started to seep from the lavatory into the passenger cabin, and the last three to four rows of the plane are filled with smoke. Wimet returns to the cockpit, and he says to the captain, I can't go back now. It's too heavy. I think we better go down. He's telling Captain Cameron that he thinks they need to land the plane. The fire is getting bad. It's 7.04 p.m., 13 minutes into the episode. Nine seconds after First Officer Wimet gives the captain his assessment that they need to land the plane because the fire is bad, the chief flight instructor, Sergio Benetti, comes into the cockpit and says, I got all the passengers seated up front. You don't have to worry. I think it's going to be easing up. This comment from the flight attendant makes First Officer Wimet look back into the passenger cabin to see the status of the smoke. And Wimet says, okay, it's starting to clear now. Wimet asks the captain if he should go to the back of the plane and investigate the severity of the fire now that the smoke was clearing. And Captain Cameron tells Wimet to do so and gives Wimet his smoke goggles. Over the next two and a half minutes, the first officer is out of the cockpit and sizing up the status of the fire. During this time, both the chief flight attendant Benetti and flight attendant Kayama come into the cockpit and offer more reassuring words about the fire clearing to the captain. Flight attendant Kayama says, Captain, your first officer wanted me to tell you that Sergio put a big discharge of CO2 in the washroom. Seems to be subsiding all right. Then a minute later, Benetti comes into the cockpit and says, I was able to discharge half of the CO2 inside the washroom, even though I couldn't see the source, but it's definitely inside the lavatory. It was almost half a bottle, and it's now almost cleared. So the chief flight attendant Benetti, flight attendant Kayama, 
and First Officer Wilmette have all told the captain the smoke is clearing or the situation is getting better. From 7.04 p.m. to 7.07 p.m., the captain, who's stuck in the cockpit flying the plane and is reliant on others for their evaluation of the fire, is getting information from his crew that the fire might not be that bad. There was a fire in the rear laboratory, the bathroom was doused with the fire extinguisher, and they just have to wait a little bit for the smoke to clear. First Officer Womack goes to the back of the plane and he touches the rear lavatory door to find that the door is very hot. He doesn't open the door and he instructs the crew to leave the door shut. At 7.07 p.m., First Officer Womett returns to the cockpit and says to his captain, I don't like what's happening. I think we better go down, okay? 30 seconds after this comment by the First Officer, the cockpit voice recorder shuts off. While the first officer was assessing the fire situation, Flight 797 was experiencing major electrical issues. First, the master caution light goes on, which warned that the plane's AC and DC electrical systems were going down. Two minutes later, the master warning light turns on, indicating that both main and emergency power were lost. This killed electrical power to the horizontal stabilizer, that T-shaped stabilizer on the top of the tail of the plane, For the rest of the flight, this horizontal stabilizer is stuck in cruising mode, and both pilots have to use great physical exertion on their control column to get the plane to descend. At 7.08 p.m., Captain Cameron of Flight 797 calls over to air traffic control at Indianapolis Center with a mayday, 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 and informs air traffic control that Flight 797 is experiencing a fire and is going down. Louisville Air Traffic Control notifies the cockpit of Flight 797 that they're currently 25 nautical miles, about 29 miles from Cincinnati, and asks them, can you possibly make Cincinnati? The cockpit responds in the affirmative and is given clearance to descend to 5,000 feet. The time is now 7.09 p.m., 18 minutes since the circuit breakers were thrown. The fire is getting worse by the minute on Flight 797, Many of the flight instruments were no longer working due to the loss of electrical power. The plane's transponder stopped working, and the passenger cabin and even the cockpit were filling up with smoke. Passengers filled up the front of the plane. No passengers were seated behind row 13. Louisville Air Traffic Control tells Flight 797 to maintain a heading of 060 towards Cincinnati Airport. At 7.10 p.m., the cockpit contacts Cincinnati Air Traffic Control and declares an emergency. The Air Traffic Control employee, 36-year-old Gregory Karam, was on duty in the Cincinnati Tower that night, and he informed Flight 797 that they were cleared for an ILS approach to runway 36 at Cincinnati Airport, and he requested that the flight change its heading to 090. 30 seconds later, Flight 797's cockpit responded that they had a fire in the aft lavatory and the cabin was filling up with smoke. Air Traffic Controller Karam asks, say the type of airplane, number of people on board, and amount of fuel. First Officer Womet replies, I don't have time now. Air Traffic Controller Karam calculates that Flight 797 is too high and going too fast to make a successful approach to Runway 36. So he changes Flight 797's approach to Runway 27L. Flight 797's heading instrumentation isn't working due to the power failure. So Captain Cameron relies completely on air traffic controller Karam's directional commands. Gregory Karam tells the flight to turn left, informs the cockpit that it will now be cleared for runway 27L, and Karam notifies emergency ground services 
to position fire trucks alongside runway 27L. Karam also gives clearance to Flight 797 to descend to 3,500 feet. At 7.15 p.m., Flight 797 notifies Karam at air traffic control that it was at 2,500 feet, and Karam vectored the flight towards runway 27L. Karam again asks for the number of persons on board the flight and the amount of fuel. The cockpit of Flight 797 responds, We don't have time. It's getting worse here. By this time, smoke is filling up the passenger cabin and cockpit. The runway lights on 27L at Cincinnati Airport were turned up to full brightness. During the descent, Captain Cameron is wearing his smoke goggles, but he's sweating, and his perspiration keeps steaming up his goggles. He has difficulty seeing. He has to occasionally remove them from his face so the steam can evaporate. First Officer Womet opens the window in the cockpit several times to try and get the smoke out, but this causes great noise and they can't hear the air traffic control, so he closes the window after a couple seconds. During this entire descent from an altitude of 25,000 feet to 3,000 feet, the plane is flying through clouds. So now the pilots are flying a plane that is on fire, full of smoke so they have to wear smoke goggles and oxygen masks. The instrumentation doesn't work because the electrical systems have failed. It's hot, and I'm sure they're stressed out, so the steam from their faces are fogging up their goggles, and they're flying through clouds almost the entire time, so they can't see anything other than clouds outside the cockpit window. Still, Captain Cameron and First Officer Womet are keeping their cool enough to fly the plane, and under the calm direction of air traffic controller Karam, they pull below 2,000 feet and are finally out of the clouds. But now the plane is really full of smoke, and they can't locate the airport initially. Air traffic controller Gregory Karam gives directional commands to the cockpit via radio and tells them they're 8 miles away from the airport, and the airport is located at 12 o'clock. Finally, the cockpit sees the airport. Flight 797's flight attendants pass out wet towels to all the passengers to help them cover their mouths so they can breathe. The flight attendants also designate passengers to assist in opening exit road doors. They teach them how to do so, and they give a hasty briefing on emergency evacuation procedures. First Officer Womet turns the air conditioning off, reasoning that the air conditioner packs might be creating more heat and worsening the fire. The cabin's also depressurized. At 7.20 p.m., 29 minutes after the circuit breakers tripped, Flight 797 lands at Cincinnati Airport. Upon landing, four main wheel tires blew out on the runway, and the plane came to a stop on runway 27L. First Officer Womet escaped through the cockpit through his sliding window, while Captain Cameron was slumped in his seat, suffering from complete exhaustion from the physical toll that landing the plane had on him. After the plane came to a full stop, the left and right front doors of the plane were opened, as were the left and right doors above each wing. Chief Flight Attendant Benetti opened the first door towards the front of the plane and escaped the fire. His two fellow flight attendants and 18 passengers escaped the plane as well in the first 90 seconds. The newly opened doors allowed oxygen to stream into the plane, which quickly intensified the fire. Two disoriented passengers passed up the exit row exit, and wandered into the back of the plane and never made it out of the plane alive. 90 seconds after the doors were opened, the plane reached flashpoint and became completely engulfed in a raging fire. A total of 23 passengers were unable to get off the plane and died in the fire. 
Captain Cameron, who was slumped in his seat in the cockpit, was sprayed by cold foam by firefighters through the cockpit window. This shocked him into waking up, and he narrowly escaped through a cockpit window and was dragged away from the burning plane by his first officer, Will Met. Captain Cameron was the last person to make it out of the plane alive. So upon the plane stopping, no one inside or outside the plane saw any flames inside the cabin, but within 90 seconds of the doors being opened, the entire plane was caught in an uncontrollable fire. Again, unfortunately, 23 of the 46 human beings on board died on Air Canada 797 on June 2, 1983. The ensuing NTSB investigation began immediately after the accident, but was unable to pinpoint the cause of the fire. On the cockpit voice recorder, on eight separate occasions starting at 6.48 p.m., three minutes before those circuit breakers tripped, investigators were able to detect arcing sounds. What is arcing? Arcing is when electricity jumps from one connection to another, or a deviation occurs in the intended route for electricity. When you touch a doorknob in your home and electricity jumps between you and the doorknob, that's an arc. So investigators heard arcing sounds eight different times on the CVR after 6.48 p.m., right around the time the pilots noticed that the plane was having electrical issues. Again, they were unable to determine an exact cause of the fire. Autopsies on the bodies of the victims from the accident showed high levels of fluoride, cyanide, and carbon monoxide in blood samples. This showed that the victims inhaled these dangerous gases released from the burning of the plane. The NTSB examined the contents of the trash bin in the rear lavatory and found that the fire didn't spread to the trash bin, and the trash bin wasn't the source of the fire. The investigation also looked at maintenance records for this plane. There were 76 maintenance reports over the previous year that this plane was flying. In September of 1979, on a flight from Boston to Nova Scotia, the plane was involved in an explosive decompression. This accident from 1979 made it necessary to replace the entire tail section of the plane, and new wiring from this new tail section of the plane was spliced together with wiring from the original fuselage of the plane. The first NTSB report on Flight 797 was released in August of 1984 and was very critical of the flight crew. In the probable cause section, the 1984 report called out the crew and said that their delayed decision to initiate an emergency descent caused the accident to be as deadly as it ended up being. In response to the critical report, First Officer Wilmette wrote a detailed defense of the crew's actions. Other commercial pilots also wrote the NTSB in support of the flight crew from Flight 797. In January of 1986, the NTSB revised its initial report to be less harsh on the flight crew. The revised 1986 report stated, The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable causes of the accident were a fire of undetermined origin, an underestimate of fire severity, and misleading fire progress information provided to the captain. The time taken to evaluate the nature of the fire and to decide to initiate an emergency descent contributed to the severity of the accident. So how did Air Canada Flight 797 make flying safer today? Well, this is probably the most interesting aspect of this accident. The incident on Flight 797 had a huge impact on the airline industry and air safety in general. First, smoke detectors were required in all laboratories due to Flight 797. 
Second, automatic discharge fire extinguishers were required in all trash bins located in aircraft lavatories. Within years, fire blocking layers were added on seat cushions and greater attention was placed on making sure materials on the inside of the plane were less flammable. Planes were also required to have track lighting on the ground to highlight the path to exits and help passengers see the pathway through dense smoke. Overhead bins now have markings to display where the exit rows are located. The NTSB report strongly advised that it become regular practice to let those seated in an exit row know that they are in an exit row and receive a verbal agreement that they will help open the exit doors in case of an emergency. Also, the report advised all airlines to review and update their emergency and fire training procedures for flight attendants. It's become a regular practice that airlines must show that their planes can be evacuated in 90 seconds or less. Flight attendants received comprehensive training on how to combat fire and were given smoke masks and portable oxygen bottles so that they could breathe while dealing with a fire emergency. So the next time you're seated in an exit row and a flight attendant asks if you will open the door in case of an emergency, or the next time you hear that announcement that tampering with a smoke detector in the lavatory is a federal offense, you can think about Air Canada Flight 797 and be thankful for the lessons learned from that accident. Those lessons helped make flying safer for you and everyone else today. So Tess, it seems like the central question of this investigation was, was the flight crew too casual about the fire? Did they not treat the fire as a serious occurrence? Do you have any thoughts about those questions or any other thoughts about the story that you'd like to share? Yeah, I was actually going to ask you that exact question about what you thought. Were they too casual? Were, should they have acted immediately and done an emergency landing? I personally think that um, if a fire breaks out on a plane, the emergency landing should be happening immediately. Yeah, I think that you existed in 2019, and this crash happened in 1983, and we really need to put ourselves in the mentality of 1983. In 1983, it was perfectly legal to smoke on planes. Everybody smoked on planes. And what often would happen was people would go in the bathroom, use the bathroom, smoke a cigarette, and put out their cigarette in the trash bin. And the trash bin often would catch on fire. So I think in 1983, a pilot flying a plane getting an update saying there's a fire in the bathroom isn't that unusual or that uncommon. So I think from your perspective, I totally agree. We grew up in the world post Air Canada 797. And prior to that flight, people smoked cigarettes and there was fires in laboratories all the time. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to ask was, didn't it seem like the flight attendants kind of waited to alert the pilots about it? Yeah, I think that's a big uh, thing that is worth discussing is that that's the criticism from the investigation. The first investigation, the NTSB said the flight crew messed up, that they underestimated the fire, that they wasted time and they should have initiated an emergency descent right in the beginning. And I think the fire was a pretty common thing. And they the, apparently the smoke looked like it was dissipating. I don't think that the flight attendant... Um, Sergio Benetti, I don't think the other flight attendant or the first officer we met like looked back and just like made up a lie and said like, oh, there's tons of smoke, but we'll lie and say it looks like it's clearing. To the, them, they said there was a fire in the lavatory. I went in the lavatory, sprayed everything with a fire extinguisher, used half an entire bottle of uh, CO2, and it looks like it's clearing. You know, I think 
that they weren't casual about it. But I think that there was conflicting information. You know, initially, the first officer says, I don't like the way this looks, let's go down. And then three minutes elapse where the captains fed these positive reviews of the uh, situation that he's told by the first officer and other flight attendants, hey, everything's getting better. We might be able to stay up here. And then finally, when the first officer goes back and he touches the lavatory and it's hot, he finally recognizes we're in trouble. I need to go communicate immediately that we need to get down. Uh, The other thing I thought was interesting was that um, when they opened the doors up to let oxygen in, that the fire intensified. Do you think there are practices in place now that prevent that from happening? Or was there any way to avoid that? That's interesting, but I don't know that there's any way to avoid that. The second you open that door, oxygen's going to get in. I don't think they realized the severity of the situation, that the cabin was full of these gases that were going to explode the second that uh, oxygen was inserted into the equation. Mm-hmm. I don't think they realized that the smoke was just, just this combination of this super highly combustible gas. So the passengers that died, did they die from inhaling this gas or did they die from the fire? Did- I would say that based upon the fact that they had these highly toxic substances in their blood, they probably died from inhaling the smoke. I mean, I think a Captain Cameron was interviewed after the crash, and he said several times he tried to get up, and he just felt like he had this force on him holding him down in his seat, and he thought that it might have been the fire or the smoke or just the physical exertion that he put on his control column to fight this, you know, horizontal stabilizer that was stuck to get mm-hmm. the plane on the ground. But he said he kept on feeling like he was going to fall Uh, into his seat and couldn't get up. And if he's the furthest human being away from the fire, all the people in the passenger cabin are much closer to the fire than him, most Mm -hmm. closer to the source of the smoke, then I would stand to reason that a lot of people in the cabin had a similar situation going on. It's so interesting. I, I always forget that people could smoke on planes. What a different world. Were there a lot of fires that would break out because of that? Did you? Yeah, I think it was a common thing that the trash bin would always catch on fire. I think Captain Cameron says that's what he thought the source of the fire was. He thought the trash bin was on fire. I think it was a common thing that people used paper towels to dry their hands, threw them in the trash bin, and then someone else would go in there with a cigarette that they were just done with and throw a lit cigarette in a trash bin full of paper towels and they would catch on fire. Mm. I thought one interesting thing is that they never really came to a conclusion. Still to this day, we don't know what caused the fire. We know that a fire started at the back of the plane and that the circuit breaker to the toilet motor was tripped, but no conclusive evidence ever came out saying this is this was the cause of the fire. It seems like also it's quite a coincidence that the fire started at the back of the plane, this, this same plane that had an explosive decompression basically mm-hmm. had to be completely rebuilt from the tail of the plane and that they spliced wires together from this new tail to the old tail. It seems like that's kind of a recipe for something to go wrong. Yeah. I also think they heard, you know, eight different sounds of electrical, you know, arcing. That seems like kind of an indicator that there was some sort of electrical issue at the back of the plane that started the fire, you would assume. So, but all that is, you know, speculation. Yeah, right. The Frankensteining of the wires sounds like it could have definitely caused problems in the plane. Yeah. It seems like the fire on the tarmac was similar to kind of like lighting a barbecue pit. Have you ever tried to light a barbecue pit and you like douse everything with 
lighter fluid and you light it and it goes initially and then it kind of goes out and then there's these little like gray smoke there and you add a little bit more lighter fluid and there's no flames at all but the second you light a match and throw it on top of the barbecue pit you get this whoosh and mm-hmm. all of a sudden the flames are there that's kind of what i'm imagining happening with the plane mm-hmm. the seats of the plane were all polyurethane foam similar to what mattresses are made out of It's highly flammable stuff. Unfortunately, it took an accident like this to bring to our attention that we shouldn't have planes full of highly flammable stuff like that. Right. Yeah, that kind of seems like a no-brainer. But I thought it was interesting that this was the plane where passengers in exit rows had to be aware that they were sitting in exit rows and able to open the door. Yeah. I thought that was kind of the most interesting aspect of this uh, crash, of this accident, was... All the safety uh, recommendations that came out of this. Mm-hmm. How many times have we get on a plane and we all hear that same safety announcement that you better not tamper with the smoke detector in the bathroom. And, you know, it, it, we have sat in exit rows before and had somebody say, hey, will you open the door? All that builds off of this crash. Have you ever gone into sort of like an existential crisis when someone asks you that and really I evaluated <laughs> whether or not you could open that door? Yeah, to some I degree. Have. Some yeah. degree I look at it and I'm like, I can ins- read these instructions, but it would help me out if I could actually just open it once and close yeah, just- it. <laughs> <laughs> you should ask for a trial run next time. Yeah, I should. <laughs> In an interview, uh, Captain Donald Cameron said once the plane started having its electrical issues, he was only left with four primitive flight instruments. He said it was like flying a plane in World War II era, like 40 years prior. He said once electricity was gone, the plane became very heavy and it took his complete concentration to fly the plane. Captain Donald Cameron died at age 84 from Parkinson's disease in December of 2016. Gregory Karam, the air traffic controller at Cincinnati Airport on June 2nd, downplayed his heroic efforts in getting Flight 797 to the ground safely. He said in an interview when asked what it was like to be a hero that several other people were working on that shift. They helped me with my other traffic. They assisted in the tower. We have people working at our facility that I admire very much. I'm here because I was put in that position when the flight arrived. It could have been at least a dozen or more others who could be giving this interview, and they deserve the credit instead of me. So he sounds like a humble Aww, and good coworker. Yeah, definitely. He's um, singing the praises of his coworkers. Yeah. He said that the cockpit of Flight 797 only had its altimeter and an attitude indicator, which told the pilots whether they were going up or down. So to get Flight 797 to the ground, Karam had to give simple directions like turn right, turn left, turn left, turn left, hold until he could guide the plane towards the runway by observing this little blip on his radar screen. Man, that sounds scary. I thought another interesting aspect was the cockpit door was apparently open the entire descent. I thought it was interesting because maybe it was overlooked, but it seems like if they had shut it, maybe less smoke would have gotten the cockpit and they could have seen a little bit better. But I'm sure in the you know chaos of the moment, they just kept it open. Why did they open it again? I imagine just to go back and observe the fire. And when they came back in, maybe they were in just such a panic that they left it open or they wanted to be able to communicate with people one thing that did happen was that the pa went out because of the electrical failure so maybe they just wanted to be able to scream directions and shout and communicate with people right in interviews after the crash passengers said the smoke smelled like burning plastic or rubber one passenger said they were shocked that it seemed as though you either survived and didn't have a scratch on you and were perfectly fine or you didn't make it out of the plane and you died Passengers also commented that everyone was calm on board. There was no pushing or panicking to get off the plane. 
Jeffrey Bettine, a surviving passenger, said, There's no doubt in my mind that one more minute and nobody would have got out. I hate to think that we were that close. And the ones that did get out, it was just by virtue of we were lucky. We were lucky. They got the plane down. They got it down as fast as they can. And we were plain lucky. Yeah, it probably had to do with seat placement too, right? I don't know. It seems like everybody got moved. It seems like it was a lot of people located near the exit row in the middle of the plane that made it out. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people at the very front of the plane made it out. And then a lot of people towards the front of the plane that weren't quite as close to those exit doors didn't make it out. Right. One interesting little thing that caught my attention while researching was that when the cockpit doors open and the pilots are first learning from flight attendant Kiyama that there's this fire going on at the back of the plane... The CVR picks up a conversation between passengers that must have been seated towards the front of the plane, close enough to the cockpit that their voices were recorded. And one passenger says to another passenger, can I buy you a drink because there's something going on? A drink or a shot? <laughs> so I just felt like it was relatable. I was yeah, like, it's a very human moment. Yeah, they're like, some, something's going down. I need some booze. Yeah, I know. I kept thinking about how the passengers were feeling during all of this, having to stuff their faces with wet paper towels and mm-hmm. a lot of moved them, up to the front of the plane. A lot of them said it was very difficult to breathe. That they, yeah. they had to breathe through this towel. A lot, Everybody was coughing. But they said that everybody was very supportive of one another, that nobody pushed, that there was a calm. No one was, people were panicking in their minds, but nobody was, uh, you know, unpleasant to be around or pushing on people or stampeding anybody. So I thought that was good. Yeah, I always like those stories. I also learned where Mayday came from while researching this uh, episode. Apparently in French, Mayday means help me. And in the early 1920s, there was a great amount of air traffic between Great Britain and France a word was needed to signal distress, so the English and French agreed to use three maydays as the signal that an emergency was afoot and help was needed. So it has to be three, it can't be one. It's mayday, mayday, mayday. Got it. Okay, it's like Beetlejuice. Yeah. Well, I think that does it for uh, Air Canada Flight 797. Tess, you ready to hear a few stories from the world of aviation news? Yes, yeah, spin me a tale. On Wednesday, November 27th, the day before Thanksgiving... After flying on an American Airlines flight 868 from Tampa to Charlotte, an expectant mother gave birth to a baby daughter on the jetway at Charlotte Douglas International Airport. Aww. The baby was named Liziana Sky Taylor. Welcome to the world, Liziana. Welcome. Happy to have you here. Any we thoughts, Tess? Uh, are mothers that are that uh, far along allowed to fly? I would imagine so, yeah. yeah. It's just a judgment call. Yeah, I don't even know how far along she was, but... She had a baby, and I'm guessing that baby wanted some Thanksgiving dinner. That's why it came out before Thanksgiving. Congratulations. I guess that uh, baby likes to fly whatever airline she was on. American Airlines, yeah. Craving the stuffing like the rest of us. Yeah, more room for stuffing. In a new survey that came out last week, the domestic U.S. airline that currently serves the healthiest food is... Alaska Airlines. Mm. Alaska Airlines' average calorie count for an in-flight meal is 375 calories. Oh, that's decent. The survey takes into account the nutritional value of food served and whether airlines use sustainable packaging and, you know, offering eco-friendly options. There was a special shame on you section in the study in which Hawaiian Airlines got called out for not sharing all their nutritional information. Oh, sketchy. You like Alaska Airlines, right? I love Alaska. I feel like they would have cod. Yeah. I feel like that would be a meal they would offer. Yeah, you could probably get that in the Northwest. Alaskan cod. 
Airbus announced on November 29th that they completed the manufacture of their 100th A220 series plane in Maribel, Canada. The 100th plane was delivered to Air Baltic, an Eastern European airline based in Latvia, that has placed an order for 300 A220s. What's this plane about? What can we expect? The A220 is a short-haul plane that can accommodate 100 to 150 passengers. Airbus A20s are manufactured in two places. There's an assembly line in Mirabel, Canada, and a second assembly line in Alabama. The first Airbus A220 came off the assembly line in November 2016, and now three years later, Airbus has made a total of 100 of them. A220s save 20% on fuel efficiency and also feature significant noise reduction compared to other commercial planes. It's a great plane for servicing flights between smaller markets. How do you feel about the Airbus A220, Tess? I am intrigued. I'd like to fly one. Yeah, I'm a Boeing man. Sorry to be so nationalistic, but I love Boeing. They're our American airplane manufacturer. I want everyone out there to succeed, though, so I'm happy that Airbus is finding some success. And it sounds like the A20 is finding a niche market for airlines that need a solid, new, smaller plane that can save some money on fuel costs. Plus, the plane is uh, manufactured in Alabama, so that means American jobs. Who doesn't love that? I know I do. You know, it's always really interesting to see airplanes being made out in the wild. I feel like I've seen uh, pieces of planes being delivered on these huge trucks, and it's always kind of beautiful. Yeah, it's cool. American Airlines announced eight new routes coming for summer of 2020. They'll be adding weekend flights from Philadelphia to Traverse City, Michigan, Nantucket, and Martha's Vineyard. Nice. All the islands that are expensive to fly to. Yeah, they're catering to summer demand. Other routes include Miami to Des Moines, Iowa, and Charlotte, North Carolina to Martha's Vineyard as well. Sounds like a sweet deal to peeps that want to get their vacay on in Massachusetts this upcoming summer. Which I am from Massachusetts, and I have to say, I'd like to get my vacay on at some point. Yeah, now if you're in Los Angeles and you want to go to Martha's Vineyard, you just take a flight to Philadelphia, and then you can take another flight to Martha's Vineyard. Yeah, I'd rather not fly through Charlotte because I have a very cursed relationship with Charlotte. I feel like I always end up staying there overnight for some reason. Tess Andrade does not like the Charlotte airport. Sorry, guys. Well, I think that's going to do it for today's episode of the Plane Crash Podcast. I'd like to thank all our listeners out there that have been writing us reviews on Apple Podcasts and befriending us on Twitter. We love friends. We're at Plane Crash Pod. Thank you to Tess Andrade for joining us and producing the podcast again. Anything you want to say, Tess? Thank you, Michael. I just have one question. Yes. What do you want for Christmas? I want world peace and everyone to become the best version of themselves possible. I thought you were going to say more reviews. More reviews would be nice, too. (laughs) (laughs) That could be a stocking stuffer. Yeah. And I hope all of you out there are working hard. Christmas is right around the corner, but it's not here yet. So let's sprint to the finish. Let's work hard, exercise hard, be kind, take care of your body, get enough sleep, read a book. And I'm excited to hang out with you guys again. I love you guys. Thanks for listening in. I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.